Today's Bible reading is from the first book of Samuel. I'll be reading a few verses from chapter 4, 5, and 7. I will start with chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Alphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of the Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's confidence from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and as they brought back the ark of the confidence of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We are doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then chapter 5, verses 1 to 7. After the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon, fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were laying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and his finicity. He brought devastations on them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us and on Dagon our God. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 13. The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Sorry. So the men of Kiriam-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to God, the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriam-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, 
Then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their bells and Asherahs, and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. When the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and sacrificed it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they stopped invading Israel's territory. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. This is the word of God. Once again, if you, haven't, uh, have, uh, if you don't have a Bible, um, there are a few at the back um, to pick it up because I'll make lots of references to uh, the parts that we weren't able to read together. Um, but let's pray that God will speak to us through God's Word. Lord, we thank you for your living Word that even as it was written thousands of years ago, that it speaks to us as living Word. And Lord, especially now, Lord, we come to you to hear from you. Lord, would you shape our minds, would you shape uh, uh, our vision of who you are and how you rule the world that we might go out into the world with the perspective that you give us, that we might be able to face all the things um, that's in our way this coming week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've known anybody who's obsessed with angels. Um, you go to their house, and you know everything is decorated with angels, f- angel figures. You've got they've got angels sort of hanging out above the do- door, f- uh, above their bed frame, or on the wall, or they've got angel mugs. Um, they're obsessed with angels. Do you know anybody like that? Uh, theologian Tim Chester thinks that this is because they, some people love angels because angels represent a divine reality, a spiritual reality, without any demand that comes from God. It's like having God light, God who doesn't demand anything from you, God who is there to serve you. In fact, this is one of the reasons why people love Christmas as well. People love Christmas. People who don't, uh, who are not Christians, love Christmas, Christmas, especially partly because, once again, this is a time when they can hold God in their hands. God is cuddly. He's cute. He's there. He's not threatening. He's not really God, they think. 
Well, if we picture God like this, if we continue to picture God as this sort of cuddly God or a servant who's there just for us, we're badly mistaken. In these chapters, we see Israelites making the same mistake. They have such a little vision of who God is, small view of God that they don't worship God, but they try to use God. They try to get them to come to their side and to fight their battles. And we see then how God responds. God responds by showing his glory, how glorious and weighty he is, how people come to worship him and bow down to him. We see that in chapters 5 and 6. In chapter 7, we see what it, what it cost to have that glorious God in our midst, what it means to have that relationship with God. Well, if there was an arch enemy of Israelites in the Bible, it was the Philistines. You know, Samson fought against the Philistines. Uh, King David, Goliath is a Philistine. We see them at war in chapter 4, verse 1, and we see them soundly being defeated in verse 2. 4,000 people were killed on that day, and they asked the right question in verse 3, right? And take a look. They say, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? They somehow realize it is related to God, and so they think they're going to bring their secret weapon, the Ark of the Covenant, Ark was the symbol of God's presence with Israel. On top of the ark was this golden seat uh, called the mercy seat, golden lid, which was uh, to be God's footstool. So if you can imagine an invisible throne, and this was to be God's footstool where he rests his feet. This was the place that God promised to meet God's people on the place mercy seat. Remember, the Jordan River parted when the people who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant landed. Their feet touched the Jordan River. It parted. When the Ark of the Covenant circled the walls of Jericho seven times and they roared, the walls came tumbling down. So they thought that this was God's presence with them. And if they just brought the, the Ark of the Covenant, surely God would bring them to victory. How could it not? How could God not do that when God has put his name there? God said, I'm going to meet you here. Even the Philistines, if you see verse 8, they know about the ark. They hear about the ark and they're afraid. They think they are doomed. And so when the ark came in the midst of their camp, the soldiers, their morale, they just lost 4,000 people. Their morale instantly lifted. They shout, uh, this uproarious shout, and the ground seemed to shake. And with it, they march to their rematch, only to meet even a greater defeat. 30,000 people die. Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the ark, priests of the temple, uh, of, uh, um, of the tabernacle, they die. The ark itself was captured. And when the news of this de- defeat reaches Eli, he falls backwards because he's so heavy. His own weight crushes him and he dies in chapter 4, verse 18. And take a look at verse 21. One of the wives of, uh, the, the, the wife of one of the sons, his, uh, Eli's daughter-in-law gives birth and names the son around that time in verse 21, Ichabod, saying, where is God's glory? Surely 
God had left Israel. God's glory had left Israel. How else would they suffer this sort of defeat? The ark was the glory of God. Israel losing the battle and the ark being captured. Surely God had left them. But they were wrong. You see, they didn't lose actually to the Philistines. They didn't lose because of the Philistines. They didn't lose because God had left the Israelites. They don't realize this, but they lost because God was in their midst. But God was not with them. God was against them. In Hebrew, the word for glory and weight are the same word. God's glory hadn't left. And that word weight and glory is repeated in chapters 4 through 7. But what is happening, what's happening in chapter 4 is God's weightiness, his substance, his glory was crushing down finally upon the Israelites who had abandoned God, was living in their own way. Remember how the man of God in chapter 2 came to, uh, uh, to, um, uh, to the Israelites, prophesied that both Eli's sons will die on the same day. Well, this was God's judgment. Remember how God spoke to Samuel in the middle of the night and asked Samuel to tell Eli that his sins will not be forgiven. Well, this was Eli meeting God's judgment. Remember how in the book of Judges, they lived as they, that they had no king. They, everyone did as they saw fit. For generations, they worshipped idols. For generations, they did as they saw fit. Well, God was bringing his judgment upon the Israelites. Israelites thought that even as they worshipped idols, even as they lived their lives their own way, they could summon God to their aid. They could just bring the Ark of the Covenant in their midst as if the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence itself, was just some, um, some lucky charm that they could bring with them. They thought if they could just bring it, they could manipulate God to do their own bidding. Even as they live for their glory, their own lives, their own self, they thought they could use God without worshiping him. God would not be mocked. God was against them. This was why they lost. In some places around the world, you can go and pay some money to pet tigers. You can imagine the instruction, right? Can't you? Uh, These tigers are trained and friendly, but please don't roar at them. Could you imagine going to the tiger and going, ah, don't make wild gestures. Don't try to excite them. I talked to one of the people who, uh, a a person who did this, and the instruction that he remembers is they told him not to pet um, its its head. Um, And of course he didn't because, well, he's a tiger. (laughs) He didn't. He lived to tell the tale. Even in the presence of a tiger, a tame tiger or whatever, we respect an animal like this. We come in that sense of respect. But unfortunately, often Israelites didn't. Often we don't say, pay the same courtesy towards God. Often there's no fear of God. Often there's no awe of God, even as we come in God's presence. So many of us, all we think about is ourselves. We live for our own glory, for our own career, for our own family, or for our own goals. We live in ways that are displeasing to him and yet have the gumption to come to God every day and say, God, could you help me 
to get to, to do the things that I want to do? Could you help me uh, to win my battle for me? And just as Israelites try to manipulate God by bringing the Ark of the Covenant in their midst, actually, we try to do many things similar. You know, have you ever prayed like this? Praying is a way, if you can think of it this way, in some ways is like bringing the Ark of the Covenant. We're saying, okay, God, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for all these things. If I pray in this way, God, you must do your part of, of granting my requests. Isn't that actually how we live our lives? Sometimes our pious and religious life as well. You might imagine, we might come to church, do all the outwardly things, come to church, read the Bible and tithe even, and say to God, well, God, I've done my part. Now you must do yours by granting me a life that's comfortable, <laughs> granting me my, my children to get into a good school, to help me. But God's no lucky charm. God will not be manipulated you know, he can't be on any human side. God is too big for that. We must make sure that we are on his side. I feel that's something that the Hong Kong, that Hong Kong needs, a reminded, re, needs to be reminded of. While well, Israelites found the weight of God's glory crushing them when they took him lightly. But there might be some, there might have been some confusion. There might have been some, uh, still, uh, it might have not been that clear to people. After all, Israelites lost and the ark was captured by the Philistines. How do we know that it's actually God who's doing this? Well, in chapter 5, God makes it very clear. To remove all doubt, God reveals his glory, not just to the Israelites, but to the Philistines. Philistines brought the ark the captured ark to their own God's temple, the temple of Dagon. They bring the ark to temple of Dagon. And they had reason to feel smug about that, right? They just won this battle. They captured the ark of the, uh, the, 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 the God of their enemies. And so they brought this feeling smug. But look what happens the next day, chapter 5, verse 3. They were in for a rude awakening because they saw Dagon fallen in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Maybe they thought, well, maybe some rats or something ate the base or, and it just fell, uh, an accident. And so they took their God and put him back together and put him in their place. I mean, their God needs a lot of help. And so they put him back to their place the next day. On the following morning, verse 4, they find Dagon again in the same position, but God makes it very clear that it was God who was doing it because God chopped off his head, his arms, and his feet. Only his body remained. It was God. It was Yahweh doing this. It wasn't a coincidence, and it wasn't just a statue of Dagon that felt the weight of God's glory. Look at the people of Ashdod, verse 6. The Lord's hand was heavy. His hand was glorious on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought dev devastation on them and afflicted them with tumor. Many people think that this was a bubonic plague. Uh, when bubonic plague is spread by rats and it, it, it uh, makes your lymph nodes uh, swell, and so maybe it explains the rat thing and the, 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 uh, the lump um, as well. 
But Ashdod was defeated completely. They're so afraid they moved the ark from Ashdod to another city, Gath. Well, the same thing happens. The plague spreads in Gath, and so the people of Gath move it to Ekron, another city in Philistia. Uh, Another plague breaks out, and so they finally decide this can't remain in the land of Philistines. They decide to bring it back to Israel. Take a look at chapter 6, verse 5. They send the ark back with Israel with gold models of tumor and rats. I don't know what they were thinking. I don't know why they thought that it was a good idea to make. Uh, could you imagine golden model of a tumor? I don't know what that would look like. <laughs> and, and, the, and the rat. But their motivation is clear. Take a look at uh, chapter 6, verse 5. They want to give glory back to God, to the God of Israel. That's why they're sending it back. Maybe God will then forgive and relent this judgment. Whatever glory that God might have lost in his ark being captured, well, it's made up completely. And just to make sure, though, Philistines, uh, to one final test, they yoke the Ark of the Covenant in between two cows that have just given birth. And if the cows, they say, go straight to Israel, right? Because every maternal instinct uh, that these uh, these cows would have would have them go back and turn around to go back to their own calves that they had just given birth to. They say, if it goes straight to Israel, then surely it was Yahweh God who did this. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. They let these calves go, and they go straight to Israel in chapter 6, verse 14. Philistines finally learned that they cannot be in God's presence as they are. They feel the weight of God's glory, and they say, we can't handle this. They need to be removed. God must go back to their own God. Philistines learned to revere God, to have that sense of awe before God, but apparently Israelites still had not. Take a look at what happened in chapter 6, verse 19 and 21 through 21. The Ark of the Covenant returns back. You see, in the, even the Levites who were um, commissioned to carry the Ark of the Covenant, they weren't even allowed to touch the Ark. They weren't even allowed to lift, uh, to, uh, to, to look inside of the Ark, lift the lid to see inside of the Ark. But, and actually, if you think about the Ark of the Covenant, where it stood, where it stood in the tabernacle and in the temple, you know, nobody even saw the Ark of the Covenant. One person, one, uh, it, once a year, it was the high priest who were selected. After all the rituals, they went in to the Holy of Holies to be in the presence of God with the Ark of the Covenant. That's the respect, that, that's the reverence that they were supposed to pay to God, uh, to be in God's presence. But these Israelites... When the ark came in their midst, they ran to it. They lifted up the lid and saw what's inside. And so God, in his anger, righteous anger, struck down 70 Israelites to their death. Then, Israelites finally learned, finally learned to revere God, to have that sense of awe before God, not to treat this ark and God as some lucky charm, something that they can manipulate, that they can take with them to see God as God, his glorious, weighty self. 
They no longer treat. Uh, the ark. They, they can't even touch it. Look at chapter 7, verse 2. The ark remained at Kiriath-Jearim for a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. They consecrate a Levite to take care of it. They dare not even to touch it, to move it anymore. For 20 years, it sat there. God is not like an old man. A lot of people imagine God as a friendly uncle. God is not a friendly uncle. God is not even like the, the chubby baby, and you know, the, the angels, baby angels. I mean, even the angels in the Bible, when angels appear in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, people fear. They're terrified. They think they're going to die. God is like the sun. It is good. He is good. But actually, he is dangerous. His presence, we cannot go into his presence without preparing ourselves. We cannot, uh, we can't expect our lives to be unchanged by being in his presence. We cannot uh, expect our lives not to revolve around his if we meet him, his true self, the weight of his glory. That's what the Israelites finally learned. And in chapter 7, thankfully, Israelites finally do something right. They start living the right way. At the end of verse 2, we read, Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. They repent. They turned back to the Lord. We see later in verse 6 how they fasted and confessed their sins before God. Many revivals start with confession of sins, recognizing that they had done wrong before God. They confess their sins. They cry out before God. But Samuel emerges back into the narrative to say, actually, it's not enough just for you to feel sorry. Take a look what he says, what he commands them to do in verse 3. Rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. He says, you need to remove from yourselves, in your midst, all idols, dethrone them and chuck them away. And so they do, in verse 4. And Philistines, at that time, thought it was a perfect time to come and invade Israel. After all, they're all gathered in one place. They're all worshiping God. They're doing their own thing. But in the midst of the attack, look how, what the Israelites say to Samuel in verse 8. Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us. He may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. They don't want the worship of God to stop. Even as they hear the news of Philistines coming into their camp, they say, please keep going. Could you please intercede for us? Could you please uh, worship God? And as part of the worship, Samuel does something that's very important. He sacrifices a suckling lamb as a whole offering to the Lord. And throughout the Old Testament, God has shown that the proper response to being in God's presence is sacrifice. That we cannot be in God's presence and be alive. That something needs to die on our behalf if we are to be in God's presence. Once again, Tim Chester put it this way, the proper response to the threat of God's glorious sacrifice, who can stand? Only those whose sins have been judged through sacrifice. Only those with the substitute who has taken their judgment. 
Even the Philistines knew this. You know, even the Philistines, when they send the ark back, remember what they did? They send back with the guilt offering. They send them back with the two cows for, for, for them to be offered back to God. And after they repent, after they worship God, after they get rid of all their idols from their midst, and after the sacrifice, verse 10, that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before Israelites. And Samuel set up a stone, a memorial, and named it, renamed the place Ebenezer, the stone of help, and say, this far, thus far, God has helped us and defeated the Philistines. Take a look at the structure of chapters 4 through 7. They're all one story. It's written in this chiastic or sandwich structure. Chapter 4 and 7 is exactly alike. They need help. They go to God um, and, and they, they, they fight in Ebenezer, in the place of Ebenezer. But the difference is that in chapter 4 they lost, in chapter 7 they win because of all the stuff that happened in their, in, in, in before. In chapters 5 and 6, they learned that God is a glorious God who cannot be taken lightly. God is God who needs to be approached with reverence and fear and awe. They learn to get rid of the idols in their midst. They learn to repent and they learn to sacrifice. And because of that, they win. In the beginning of our story, Israelites think that the Philistines are their biggest threat. What they find out is actually having God in their midst. That's their biggest threat. That's what they found out. Israelites and the Philistines alike. How about us? Hong Kong has seen one of the worst weeks in Hong Kong in our history. Both sides invoke God's name and they want God to come and help them. And their side, they want to co-opt God for their side. And God cannot be manipulated. God won't be a lucky charm to be on anyone's side. Once again, God's justice, his peace, his vision of all of this is much bigger than ours. God is not on your side, no matter what side you are. We must make sure that we are on his side. And not only that, what this text and the Bible, the rest of the Bible show us is that these things that go on around us, they're not our biggest threat. Yes, protesters' violence, it's there, but it's not our biggest threat. China, this government, it's not our biggest threat. Friends, God's glory in our midst is our biggest threat. God's glory in our sinfulness is our biggest threat. If you think about what has happened, it seems to me these protests and the things that go on reveal what's in our hearts. What's really in our hearts? We've seen demand of justice in some of the most unjust ways. We've seen people calling for peace when their version of peace is just suppression, suppression of dissent. That's not peace. That's not God's vision of peace. Out of all this uh, turmoil, we see people angry, impatient, hating people. People's greed come to the fore. Protesters revealed our idols as well, idols of money. Our rights, comfort, political ideology, nationalism, those are all idols. None of us are pure, and none of us can withstand God's holy presence 
in our midst, His holiness in us is the biggest threat. How then are we to respond to all of this? How can we withstand God's presence today? Well, not because of anything that we've done, but because of grace of Jesus. Because Christ's blood was shed for us, we can be in God's presence, and that's the glory of the gospel. I told you that the word for Hebrew for weight and glory are the same words. Eli, Eli's sons, took the meat from the uh, from fat of 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 the of the meat and added to himself. That's how he got he got weighty. That's how he he grew glorious. That's what we do. We seek our own glory by taking things from others. How differently God showed His ultimate glory. He gives up. His son to die for us. After the Israelites won that battle, they set up that stone of of help, Ebenezer. It was there to mark their place of victory. We often skip the second verse of the song "Come Thou Found" because actually we we don't know what Ebenezer means. And this is how uh, the second verse goes: "Here I raise my Ebenezer; hither by thy help, great help I've come." And I hope by thy great pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from the danger, interposed by his precious blood. Our Ebenezer is the cross. Thus far, God has helped us. And he's a glorious God. I don't know how you are responding to the crisis that's going on. Let's stop trying to manipulate God to be on our side. Let's shed our small vision of God. Let's repent. Let's turn away from our idols. Let's offer our lives as living sacrifice, as a spiritual act of worship. Let's continue worshiping God as our Lord in the midst of all of this. And let's come to Christ. Let's come to Christ Cling to Christ, our glorious King. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you as people who are sinful, who cannot withstand your grace, who cannot be in your, in your presence ourselves. Lord, we have been reacting uh, we have, in our actions, we see our sinfulness. In our reactions, we see our sinfulness. Lord, would you help Christians in Hong Kong to turn to you in the midst of everything? Lord, we pray that there will be a great revival of your people, shedding of idols. Lord, would you gather us to worship you each day um, as a spiritual act of worship to live our lives in a way that shows how seriously we take you, our God, in our midst. But Lord, we know that even as we take you with our utmost seriousness, Lord, we cannot withstand your glory. Lord, so we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that because of him, we are able to be on your side in your presence. And Lord, we pray that as we go out um, today, in this week, in the midst of all of these things, to have that great uh, vision of who you are, 
great vision of your glory and what you have done uh, for us. And Lord, we pray that we'll have the right perspective as we go out with your glory in mind um, to live our lives as living sacrifices. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.